Blog Talk Radio. It's time for the Root and Roots Show on blogtalkradio.com. Now here's your host, Greg Rashid, bringing you the best in music, information, and history. Well, good evening, everyone. This is Greg Rashid, the host of the Root and Roots Show, heard every Friday evening at 6 p.m. And this evening, Saturday, at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, where we try to give you the best of history, and we have an Afrocentric uh, stance to our history uh, discussions on this show. But also, we talk a little bit about everything on here. Plus, we play roots music from the jazz, blues, gospel, hip-hop, country, soul, world genres. And I hope you enjoy the music. We're going to do some slow jams later on, by the way. And before I start anything, I just want to say hi to my friends out there in Colorado listening on KUHS Denver Radio and Television. I say hi to everyone out there, especially to my friend Henry Archie Letter, the founder of KUHS. I hope you're enjoying the show. You'll hear this on a delayed basis. Some of you might be listening live, but if you are, give us a call here at 424-675-8315, 424-675-8315. I'm Greg Rashid, again, your host. And I'm going to start this off with, uh, we're going back to 1934, and we're going to play a baseball part of a baseball game between the New York Yankees and Detroit Tigers, and it's part of the theme of the show this evening. So let's hear that on the Root and Root Show. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Cy Tyson speaking to you for WWJ, the Detroit News. And we're out here at the side of the Yankees for the season of 1934. Just one more bite, one more swallow, and that four-course Yankee dinner will be safely tucked away under the Tiger belt. You know, we sort of missed out on the salad course yesterday, but... No matter who wins or loses, the White Star Refining Company and its allied mobile gas and mobile oil dealers are bringing you the games. And uh, that's something to remember. You know, when the gauge on your car shows you need gasoline, just stop at the sign of the flying red horse and say thanks to the mobile gas man for the Tiger broadcast. Make White Star stations your headquarters for every motoring need. Expert lubrication, tires, batteries, polishes, waxes, and that famous insect killer, Bugaboo. Everybody's for the Tigers now. Everybody's backing them to win. But it's easy to pick a winner at this stage of the game. But it took Wright Star to pick them last spring when they backed their judgment with a good round sum to bring you these great baseball broadcasts. White Star knew a leader when they saw one. They're leaders themselves here in Michigan, and it takes a leader to pick a leader. Right here in Wayne County, the home of the Tigers, more motorists use mobile gas than any other gasoline. White Star proved its leadership by being the first to bring a 70-octane gasoline to you at no extra price by bringing you the symphony concerts last winter, by bringing you these Tiger broadcasts, and by bringing you mobile gas with climatic control and mobile oil, the world's fastest-selling motor oil. So follow the leader. Make mobile gas and mobile oil a motoring habit. It's a great chance to tell the mobile gas man that you're enjoying these Tiger baseball broadcasts at the sign of the flying red horse. Now we're going to have a baseball broadcast in a few moments. Just a moment ago, a crowd of Fowlerville fans, home of Charlie Geringer, presented Charlie with a huge floral horseshoe and also a basket of flowers for manager Cochran. They also brought one down for your announcer, which he appreciates very greatly. And I know that 
your announcer's wife will appreciate it when he gets it home this evening after writing that terrible piece he has to write each day for the paper. The teams will line up as follows. Fox for Detroit. Fox, right field. White, center field. Geringer, second base. Greenberg, first base. Owen, third base. Goslin, left field. Rogel, shortstop. Hayworth, catcher. Marbury, pitcher. And for the Yankees, Crosetti, shortstop. Rolf, third base. Selkirk, left field. Gehrig, first base. Lazeri, second base. Chapman, center field. Bird, right field. Jorgens, catcher. And Broca, pitcher. Johnny Broca and Art Jorgens. For New York, Fred Marbury and Ray Hayworth for the Tigers. To go, the... Uh, Local dealers of the Wall Eversharp Pen and Pencil Company presented Mickey Cochran and myself for the desk set and pen and pencil sets to Charlie Gehringer, Hank Greenberg, Goose Garden, and Schoolboy Roll. Ought to be a lot of writing done this winter. Tigers are going out to their position in the field. The game will be on very shortly. Yeah, the game will be on very shortly. We're not going to listen to the game, but I want you to get a sense of, of baseball announcing in 1934. Why I did that, because I have as my guest online right now, I'm, ta- I'm getting ready to talk to Professor James R. Walker. He's the author of a new book, Crack of the Bat, A History of Baseball on the Radio. Are you there, James? I sure am. Pleasure All to be here. All right, now. Uh, nice to have you on here. And listen, you can call in at 424-675-8315, 424-675-8315, because I always like to do, I love talking about baseball, as most of my listeners know, and then old-time radio, so it's a combination of both on this show. But I want to ask you, first of all, James, what made you, I enjoyed the book, because there's some things I learned in here I didn't know about radio, you know, because you would think, you know, I love reading about old-time radio just seeing how things started, especially, you know, with sports and baseball in particular. But what made you decide to do this book? Uh, Well, I I had a career as a college professor, and I taught a lot of media courses and everything from uh, television and video production. I worked a little bit in television uh, in the 1970s as a talk show host, and and that became my career. And I did a lot of uh, what we call quantitative or social scientific research through much of my career. But as I got a little older, I got interested in historical topics, so I combined two interests that I'd had for a long time, uh, baseball and uh, media history, and uh, sort of took that on as an angle and found out that uh, not all that much had been written. Um, There's a lot written about the announcers, which is, of course, right and proper, but not that much on the actual industries and how Major League Baseball worked with those industries, and in some sense... um, kind of fought those industries for uh, for many years, so it turned out to be a pretty interesting story. Uh, a colleague and I did a book on the history of, um, of the relationship between baseball and television called Centerfield Shot, and this is, a, if you will, kind of a prequel to that, uh, Crack of the Bat, a history of baseball on the radio. You know, yeah, I have to get that other book, too, because I found out about that one, but I was curious, um, you know, I started reading the book and learning about the first Yes, the first, you know, the first attempt at broadcasting was with the um, Pirates, and talk a little bit about that. 
Yeah. Um, Pittsburgh's KDKA was the first commercially licensed broadcast station. It certainly wasn't the first station to broadcast, by that meaning sending a radio signal out, sound radio signal out, to be picked up by anyone with a receiver. Um, but it was the first one to receive a commercial license to broadcast and is often thought of as the, the birthplace of, of, of radio in, in the United States, commercial radio in the United States. And in the 1920s, uh, you know, they really just did everything. Um, there wasn't a lot of programming. There, of course, were no networks back then. And Stowe stations just kind of grabbed. Uh, they didn't really play recordings. Recordings weren't a particularly high quality. Uh, occasionally they would fill in with recordings, but they tried to do as much live programming as they could. And so KDKA is credited with a lot of first, uh, first tennis match, the first uh, football game, uh, the first Major League Baseball game, uh, a whole series of things, first religious broadcast, for example. And, of course, they uh, inaugurated their broadcast with the election returns from 1920. Uh, uh, this was August 1921 that they did the first broadcast. And uh, the fellow that did it was uh, not really a professional announcer. Uh, he started as an engineer and just sort of picked up announcing because he has a facility for it and didn't have any particular special interest or skill in baseball. He just kind of sat down in the, in the stands uh, near the field with a microphone uh, and began uh, calling a game as he saw it. And with quite a few long pauses in between, so uh, his his quality perhaps wasn't that great, but he certainly had primacy. He was the first one to do it, a guy named Harold Arlen, and he actually um, uh, was brought back by the Pirates in the 1970s uh, as a kind of an anniversary broadcast, and uh, at least the reports say that he kind of froze up on the mic a little bit uh, back in, in the 1970s, but, uh, but he certainly is credited with the first Major League broadcast. And probably, you know, I was looking at the picture of him in the book and reading about it. Probably when he saw all the technology in the 70s around him, it probably really made him freeze up. You know, it wasn't yeah, as simple he as he remembered. Did, yeah. yeah, it was a you much know, more complex, wanna, uh, complex thing. You know, and that's 70 now. It's just ridiculous now. But I guess what I just played um, prior to you coming on was from 1934, the Tigers and Yankees. And I think, right. and you can help me with this, I think that's the first Regular season broadcast is still in existence. Um, I think I think it's the oldest recording of a regular yeah. season broadcast. I believe. Now, when we always say that, then somebody pops up with a new one, you know, oh, yeah. uh, two weeks later. But uh, but yeah, that is uh, that's the one that I've seen often referred to as the oldest broadcast. And uh, although they could do recordings back then, they did them on transcriptions, which was kind of like cutting a record. Uh, uh, they didn't really even have wire recorders back then, much less tape recorders, um, and uh, and so they didn't do that much. And when they did, it was usually um, because the uh, network wanted to record something that they could delay broadcast. But the FCC actually had some rules about limiting uh, recorded programming, so transcri transcriptions like that were considered kind of secondary. Uh, and actually, one of the reasons uh, some of the recordings were made, I believe that one in 1934 was made, because um, the uh, commissioner of baseball was concerned about over-commercialization uh, and some of the work that the announcers were doing, and so he wanted a transcription made. And I think that's why that, that recording still exists. And we're going to get to the commissioner in a minute, but I think we have a caller on the line. Let's see. Are you there, caller? What are you doing? You haven't talked to Tom Brady yet? Oh, this must be somebody you somebody know. Somebody in that organization knowingly took air out of those footballs, and we should have an idea who did that. Do you know this person? No. <laughs> All right. Hey, he took 
All right, well. Okay. I don't know what that was. Is that California? Uh, Sounds like somebody's still upset about Tom Brady in the air and the footballs. (laughs) I guess. I don't know. You know, it takes all kinds, you know. But you can call in listeners. If you've got a serious question, 424-675-8315. Talking with uh, James R. Walker, the author of the book Crack of the Bat, A History of Baseball on the Radio. Now, uh, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, it's not my favorite person. I had a discussion last night, I usually do, about Commissioner uh, Kinsaw Judge Kinsaw Landis. You know, we yeah. were talking about integration last night. But talk about his role in baseball and radio, because he was definitely someone who was opposed to it initially. Yeah, well, he, he um, and I think uh, most baseball owners, uh, but especially Landis, did see the popularity of the World Series broadcasts in the 1920s, and these were almost kind of a national phenomenon. Uh, the World Series, along with heavyweight, major heavyweight boxing matches, really uh, uh, catapulted radio into the into the prime time. I mean, we think of radio as ubiquitous now, but in the early 1920s, only a very small percentage of people had radios, and most people who listened to these early World Series broadcasts uh, or prize fights listened to them at the general store or at the local tavern because they're the ones that had the radios. Uh, they weren't in the homes yet. So radio uh, sports, and particularly the World Series, helped sell radio um, to the American public and make it popular, and it grew dramatically in the 1920s and, of course, the 1930s. And Landis thought was, was positive about World Series broadcasts, and he believed that the commissioner had sole control over rights to the World Series uh, as an exhibition between the two leagues. But when it came to regular season broadcasts, he really took a hands-off attitude there. His attitude was that was the business of the owners and particularly the leagues. If the leagues wanted to set a policy, he never formally said, I have no role in this, but every time it came up, he basically uh, stepped aside and let the leagues uh, do what they wanted to do. And the leagues were very split. Um, both leagues uh, had about roughly equal numbers of owners who thought radio was a benefit to the game and tried to broadcast their local games. And about half the owners in the leagues thought radio was giving the game away and that it would keep fans away from the park because why would you pay an admission to a ballpark and take the time to go there when you could hear the game? Um, obviously not see it, but you could hear the game. Uh, and they were concerned about that. And, and the owners were very split on it. The Chicago Cubs owner, William Wrigley uh, Jr., was a big um, uh, chewing gum magnet, Wrigley's gum. He believed in advertising. He had seen advertising work. He believed in radio advertising. And he saw his broadcast as a two-hour commercial for his team that would bring fans to the ballpark, make women and young children interested in the game, uh, and bring fans from outside the Chicago area. But some of the owners didn't see it that way, and particularly the East Coast owners, the ones in uh, Philadelphia, especially New York, uh, Washington also, uh, were pretty anti-radio. And uh, they worked pretty hard in the 1920s and even and into the 1930s to try to get the leagues to ban uh, all local broadcasts. Landis pretty much stayed out of it uh, at that point, but the owners were, were pretty divided. But he did do something really amazing. In 1934, after more almost um, what, 13 years of broadcast, 14 years of broadcast of the World Series, he, uh, for the first time, sold the rights to Ford Motor Company uh, to advertise their automobiles on the World Series. And that was the first time the World Series was commercialized. It's just amazing to us today 
to think that an event as important as the World Series or the Super Bowl uh, would not be commercially sponsored, but in fact uh, it was seen as a public service. Uh, but it is in the middle of the Great Depression, in, it, yeah, it's an important moment in just advertising in general. You know, yeah, it is. You know, it absolutely is, and uh, it's a real turning point. Uh, sports uh, has never never looked back after that. Um, but uh, it was uh, con- very controversial at the time. Even the the radio networks, the NBC, for example, and CBS, did not really want to commercialize it. They were both carrying the World Series at the time. Later, Mutual would carry it, uh, and so most of the radio stations in the United States, well over half the radio stations in the United States were carrying the World Series at one point. And the networks wanted it that way. Uh, they, they saw it as a public service, like a presidential address or something like that, that they should carry unsponsored. Obviously, the world's changed dramatically since then. Yeah, you can never hear anyone in a corporate office or any other network saying that now. There's no way. Like, no, we don't need no. advertising. No, no. <laughs> no and, fact, and, uh, and uh, you get a whole idea of – I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I'm – yeah, I'm going to jump ahead because you're mentioning advertising. I'm going to jump ahead in the book and just come back again. But talk about the tie-ins that a lot of announcers, because you talked about Charlie Steiner in particular and some of right. the other announcers. Talk about those tie-ins yeah. that are really just disgusting. Yeah, they're called. I think the, the industry term that I heard anyway was drop-ins, but, uh, you know, it, it is it is a commercial tie-in exactly. Uh, and, uh, you know, some of them sound kind of ludicrous. The uh, disclaimer, uh, you know, that they read about the announcers, uh, uh, you know, working for the Major League Baseball and so forth, uh, and that are that no one can use the broadcast without express written consent. Uh, those those announcements have sponsors. They're sponsored by legal companies or um, some some. Uh, some uh, teams have uh, every time the pitcher hits a really good pitch on the outside corner of the plate, which we call painting the corner, uh, that pitch is sponsored by a painting company. Uh, and these little drop-ins have just increased over the years, and the announcers really do notice it. Now, baseball really lends itself to that because there are a lot of gaps. Um, the, the game can be uh, relatively slow-paced sometimes, and so there are places to drop those in, but they've really increased. I think Charlie Steiner's term for this is to put more into the thimble. Um, that is, the amount of time doesn't expand, so they sort of fit some of the commercial messages into the into the gamecast. Uh, one of the first controversies about the commercialization of baseball on the radio was when the Detroit Tigers actually started having commercial breaks during the innings, because for years before that, this is in the 1930s, uh, all the commercial sponsorship amounted to was this game has been brought to you by Mobile Oil, and at the end, this game was brought to you by Mobile Oil. That was the commercial content. So uh, early on, even having commercials was controversial. We've come a long way since then. Oh, certainly. And also, um, talk about the guy that kind of invented sports broadcasting as far as an announcer. He wasn't the greatest, but he's the first one to, like, not just talk about what's going on in the field, but talk about a little bit of everything. I guess we're talking about Graham McNamee. So talk a little bit about him. Graham McNamee. Yeah, Graham was uh, was a generalist. He actually started, uh, wanted to be a opera singer, and he had obviously a wonderful voice and great facility with language, but he, he, he did everything. Uh, that was in the day when you were hired to be an announcer, and you might do classical music, and you might do baseball, and you might do prize fighting, and you had to be a quick study on, on all of these things. And, in fact, there's a number of baseball writers who, who tended to always be a little uh, snarky, if you will, uh, towards the radio people who made fun of some of the mistakes he would make. 
but he was very, very popular. He received thousands of letters of uh, support and encouragement uh, and occasional criticisms as well. But he was probably the first uh, radio sports star, if you will, uh, not just baseball, but he, he was nationally known because of his World Series coverage. Uh, and that really started in 1923. And then his career goes through the 30s. He, he does the, the World Series, and then he dies at a relatively young age. But uh, he is probably the first most famous uh, broadcaster, even though he wasn't what we might think of as a professional radio broadcaster or, or baseball broadcaster. And I know there's a movement afoot, if I'm not mistaken, to try to get him in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Yes, and, and in terms of, uh, I don't think there wouldn't be a case for somebody like Harold Arlen because it was just kind of a, a quirky thing right. that he announced the first game. But McNamee, I think there's a pretty strong case, not so much on the on necessarily the quality of his work, but the quantity of his work over time and the uh, primacy of his work. He he was inventing something, and that's pretty hard to do. He had no models to follow. Even somebody as great as Red Barber, who often is thought of as the uh, the sort of father of the modern baseball broadcaster, and uh, many modern broadcasters, including uh, Pat Hughes, uh, really celebrate him and see him as as sort of the father. Uh, he was Vin Scully's mentor, for example. Um, even he had people to listen to. He could learn from them. He could learn the good and the bad. Graham McNamee had no one to listen to. Uh, he had to invent the craft. Uh, he, he, the only people that predated him were a couple of newspaper reporters, one of whom was very famous, Grantland Rice, and they certainly didn't have any idea what they were doing when they were on the radio. And I guess Rice didn't like McNamee. I guess at one point, I guess they were trying to cover the one game together, and he just walks out. Well, uh, it, it was actually it's not it, it was not uh, Grantland Rice. He he did it one year, the first uh, sort of national uh, or the first real coverage uh, of the World Series. That is where the announcer was actually at the ballpark calling the game. Uh, that was in 1922, and he had right. enough of it. It was hard. It was just different. He was used to being able to compose beautiful uh, language. He was an incredible writer, one of the great sports writers of all time. But he could he could do it in in the leisure of the time. He wasn't that good at doing it instantaneously at the at the spur of the moment. And uh, the next year he was replaced by a colleague, uh, and uh, that colleague lasted through uh, about two games, and then in the middle of the third game, he basically just took a powder. He just said, that's enough. I don't like this. I'm leaving. And McNamee, who was really his assistant, uh, kind of like a spotter assistant, um, sort of stepped in and took over, and that's how he kind of inherited the uh, the mantle. Now, you mentioned Red Barber earlier. And listeners, you can join in at uh, 424-675-8315. We're not talking about Tom Brady, so don't call in about that. But four two four six seven five eight three one five. I'm talking with James Walker, the author of the book Crack of the Bat: A History of Baseball on the Radio. Now, Red Barber, uh, in your book, he, talk, he he complains about initially he didn't like he didn't like base, retired baseball players as play-by-play announcers or color guys. And talk a little bit about that. Yeah, his uh, you know he was a consummate professional. He really. Uh, and, and and also he was someone who saw himself uh, as a journalist, uh, not just a, an entertainer. He knew there was an entertainment dimension to radio, and he certainly came up with some incredibly entertaining uh, phrases, um, uh, the catbird seat being one of them. Uh, but he also believed in accurate reporting, and he was a little offended, particularly about when Phil Rizzuto 
displaced a colleague of his, a fellow named Jim Woods, who was a very competent professional announcer. Uh, and the uh, sponsor decided to drop Woods and to bring uh, Phil Rizzuto, who obviously became in himself a legendary broadcaster and a much beloved broadcaster and certainly was a very colorful uh, speaker. But he wasn't seen as a true professional uh, and someone who prepared properly, and he, he didn't believe. First of all, I think he believed that Rizzuto hadn't earned his chops. He hadn't earned the right, right to do this. Um, he was just a famous ball player, great one, but but that was it. And then he felt that he didn't really prepare uh, appropriately. Uh, and there were certainly other announcers who didn't prepare the way Red Barber did. Um, but uh, So he, he was a little resistant. I think over time um, he probably began to mellow a bit. And uh, basically today uh, the play-by-play announcers, who by and large are professional, some of them are ex-players, but most of them are professional announcers, um, do really enjoy their color commentators and really see the relationship as an important one, almost like a marriage, uh, and one where they have to be really support each other and be generous with each other. And it's a very long season. And if you're not getting along with your partner in the booth, it, it's a much it's a much oh, longer yeah. season. Especially you know, and for you know, I was some 20 years spending 13 of those, those years covering the Rockies for cable radio and, and also. On, cable television, also radio, from 2001 to 2013. And that, you know, so for three, about four years, it was basically a bad product. And I just felt sorry for those guys that were covering that team on a regular basis doing 162 games a year because that's that's brutal. You got to, you know. Yeah, you uh, you know, Pat Hughes really really talks about – you know, you're talking about those games in August or September where the team is far out of it and nobody's really playing for anything, and and suddenly there's you know ten walks on each side and the game's four hours and fifteen minutes. Um, you better have a pretty good partner to help you help you get through that. Yeah, because it, it, you know, especially you know where I came from, cool, you know, out there in Colorado, Coors Field, those games average at one point. Oh, in the mid two thousands, oh four hours, oh nine inning games going four yeah. hours. It was ridiculous. Right. It was right, really right. it was fun in one sense, but really, I couldn't call those games because they, they were just it was yeah. just too much. So let's let's yeah. fast yeah. forward a little to um, today and technology now because you talk you know you talk about you know the digital age now we've come a long mm-hmm. way from just one person in the booth with papers you know sitting there. Right. And not given like his proper space in the booth. And talk talk a little bit about that now. Where you see it going now as far as radio on, you know, baseball on radio. Yeah. Well, I th- I think the actual calling of the game, the announcer's job, hasn't changed dramatically. I think um, announcers are aware that fans have access to a lot of information that they didn't used to have access to. And people who are listening to a daily broadcast of a baseball game are, are pretty, usually pretty, no, they're not casual fans. Casual fans are more likely to be watching on television. And so they are aware that fans are much more knowledgeable. And so I think they have to dig a little harder to come up with information that maybe is new, that isn't out there already, that isn't on somebody's blog. Uh, in the same respect, the, the newer technologies make it easier for them to find information uh, and to look, but it also creates a much bigger world. The early announcers just had to look at the daily papers 
uh, maybe interview a players or manager, and that was pretty much all they needed to do prepare. There's so much more information out there, so that's challenging. When the game is actually underway, though, I think that probably hasn't changed that much. What has changed dramatically is the distribution of the radio signal. Um, obviously, uh, over-the-air broadcast radio is still well-established. It's still being used uh, by most of the population. Uh, it's still probably the way most people listen to uh, GameCast, um, or at least the audio GameCast. But on the other side of it, uh, we now have the distribution of those signals via satellite um, and then also via um, the Internet. And uh, the audio signal has always been pretty much the pioneer in that regard. Um, the Internet distribution was first based on audio. A video came along later, and uh, audio established that pattern. But the, the, the basic broadcast often you know, being done on an AM station that was broadcasting in the 1920s, maybe even the same station that was carrying the team in the 1920s. Um, those broadcasts are still the basis. They still are the originating signal, if you will. The newer technology is used to distribute it more widely and obviously make the game available to uh, out-of-market fans. So we live in a wonderful age in that if you're a fan of any team, you can right. get both video and audio signals you know, almost anywhere you live in, in the United States, and that's great. But the, the, the core broadcast is still the radio broadcast. And that's amazing. And it's so funny because as I was reading your book and now just listening to you, I was just thinking about with my little RCA transistor radio when I was a kid, one night, because, I, I, you know, I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area, and I would listen to the senators, and sometimes you could barely hear Oreo broadcast. Yeah. But one night yeah, I... Yeah had my radio turned a certain way in my hand and I picked up the Houston Astros and I went nuts. Yeah. Yes. You know, yes. Houston yes. and I had to hold my hold the radio a certain way the whole night so I could hear that so it wouldn't fade out. It was you like know, finding so a rare coin in your chain. Oh right? yeah, I, I, I couldn't believe it, yeah. you know. Said, yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of people of my generation and probably your generation as well uh, remember those very fondly. The, you know, I, I say the AM radio was our internet. You know, that was our oh, reaching yeah. out to the world. You know, not the world really, but at least the rest of the United States. And I was a little boy growing up in uh, central Pennsylvania, a very rural area. My radio station at the time uh, went off the air at night. <laughs> it was a daytime only station. Oh yeah. And uh, but at night, uh, when the signals got clearer and you could get little distant signals, um, you, I could listen to Harry Carey in uh, St. Louis. Sometimes I could listen to Chicago. I could listen to Mel Allen in New York. Um, I could listen to uh, uh, I saw him in Philadelphia. I could pick those up, but not every night. Some nights you couldn't. Yeah, that's it. Um, and and the whole idea that you know you could get it one night, not the next night, made it a little bit intriguing. Like it's just going to be a good night or a bad. That's night. a challenge. It was fun. Um, yeah, it was fun. It was fun. Sure, it was. You know, just seeing it, but you know, it was fun for me just reading this book. Now, talk. You know, I got a couple more questions. One in particular, what? Because you mentioned this in the book, the effect that television had in the late '40s and '50s on radio. Because there's this like, some of the forces that were against radio all of a sudden team up with radio. And talk a little bit about that, because I found that that dy yeah. dynamic yeah. very interesting. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a repeating history not all history repeats itself but there are sometimes some repeating themes and among owners and remember major league baseball was quite a bit different industry back then it was really these were like family businesses and these guys 
pretty much they were all men pretty much did what they wanted to do as long as the business you know was viable they could pretty much do what they want kind of like a local restaurant owner versus a big right. chain or something like that and um and so they could make uh, idiosyncratic decisions and they were resistant it goes back to they were resistant to telegraph coverage of their games they were uh, resistant to newspaper coverage in the early in the very early days uh they were resistant to radio but what typically happens is the new medium finally becomes accepted, and mostly they see the benefits of it in the future. And by the 1950s, when television's coming along, radio is well-established. The battles over that are long over, and radio becomes um, the, the way in which the game is, is being experienced. But they're fighting television because they really do believe television gives the whole game away, the picture as well as the sound. Radio explodes dramatically in the 1950s, um, because the owners didn't put that many games, uh, their, their regular season games, uh, on the air. The World Series was on the air, of course, and some markets like New York and Chicago in particular had a lot of games on the air. Um, but that's a little misleading. Most markets didn't have that many games. The typical pattern was to carry games uh, on the weekends, uh, Saturday and Sunday, if at all, and they didn't have very big uh, radio or television networks. Radio, on the other hand, the number of stations in the United States grew dramatically after the Second World War for a lot of different reasons that we don't need to go into, but the numbers are staggering. And these stations came on the air just at the time the radio networks were contracting, and that meant they had to get programming. And one of the solutions was to play records. The disc jockey format became a staple right. of American radio. And the, uh, one of the other things was to do sports. And baseball was a great radio sport. It was on uh, almost every day for six months of the year and uh, gave them original programming uh, that nobody else, at least in their market, had. Uh, and the teams developed very big networks. And some of them, uh, particularly in the Midwest, the networks were of staggering size, because uh, they could reach out. And remember, until 19, um, the 1960s, uh, or excuse me, the, the 19, mid-1950s, um, the uh, baseball stopped at the Mississippi River. St. Louis was the most Western franchise until 1958. And so St. Louis could reach through almost half the country, if you will, uh, with, with small market stations that wanted their game. And there were a couple of radio networks in the early 1950s that one of which became uh, the whole network was based on radio, um, it, our own baseball broadcast, the Liberty Broadcasting System, and most of those games were recreations. Uh, they weren't done live from the ballpark. They were recreated from right. telephone or from telegraph uh, transmissions by a very, very skilled commentator, uh, Gordon McClendon. And one of his uh, pupils was a longtime, very famous Hall of Fame announcer, Lindsey Nelson. Um, who did became a major national figure in, in baseball, but also in, oh, yeah. in football and other sports. Yeah, with the Mets and, and, um, and everything. And the Mets, of course, uh, you know, for an original announcer with the Mets. So uh, he actually trained um, Lindsey uh, Nelson to do uh, recreations, and McClendon took the recreations to a whole new level. Um, he because this was now a national network, um, and just because he was a very creative person, he went to the trouble of recording the individual sound effects from different ballparks. So he would have the playing of the national anthem recorded from a particular ballpark, crowd sounds from that ballpark. He wouldn't do just a generic sound effects record. He would uh, have specific recordings made because he wanted to make them sound very realistic. And, uh, and he also was very good at imagining. Yes, they are. Are any uh, of those if you just, Yes, yes, they are. If you just do a little uh, web searching for Gordon McClendon, 
um, the, you, you'll, they'll pop up, and the recordings are, are available in a number of different locations. Um, so yes, I'm going to definitely they are. check that out. And one, my, yes. one of my goals in life, I know out there because we had talked earlier that someone out there probably has an older recording of a game prior to 1934 somewhere. I know somewhere in this world, someone has five minutes, two minutes of a Negro League baseball game. I know some, yep. you know, all my readings that somebody at some point was covering those games on African American radio stations. Yes. Particularly yep. the All Star yep. games out of Chicago. I know they're out there. And I'm hoping yep. that one day they just show up. Yeah. I would That's, love to hear It's you know, true, but it. It is it is frustrating because of course the hat recording has to be made and somebody has to save it. Right. Um, but yeah, things do pop up. Uh, one of the most amazing things happened just a few years ago um, when somebody found a kinescope uh, of oh, the, the uh, you know, visual recording of the 197th right. game of the 1960 World Series. That's right. Nobody knew it was. It was sitting on the top of a shelf, a file cabinet, and the collection of material that the Bing Crosby family had, because Crosby was a, a partial owner of the Pirates, and he had made a kinescope recording. And you would think, oh my goodness, World Series, you know, this is a big, yeah. big, big deal. I mean, you know, tens of millions of people are watching this. They literally didn't make very many recordings. Um, there are just lots and lots of years where there's no games recorded. It's just, just and. And that one of the most famous games in television history. That popped up in, and had been hidden. Um, not too long uh, before that, they found um, a copy of Larson's per- Perfect Game, a kinescope, um, a partial. There was some, uh, I think, early innings missing. But still, these things do pop up. So keep looking. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, I know the Lingro Leagues weren't, dis- weren't covered extensively on radio, but there right. were African-American radio stations. I'm sure they did some coverage. And I also know that the Dodgers, after they signed Robinson uh, and other uh, great uh, African-American ball players, um, started actually developing a networking of stations, uh, including African-American radio stations uh, in the South and other areas, to uh, essentially extend their market for for their games. And there was a market for that because, obviously, of the importance of Robinson to the community. That's amazing. I know it's out there, but, James, I just want to thank you for taking the time to talk about the book. It's a great book. and I mean, there's so much I wanted to ask you about, but I don't want to give away everything in the book because there's some things about the announcers. Mm -hmm. We could do a whole show about Phil Rizzuto, as a matter of fact. But uh, thank you again. Oh, yeah, it's, it's a story in itself. But thank you again, James, for being on. And the name of the book is Crack of the Bat, A History of Baseball on the radio. It's on the University of Nebraska Press, and I've been talking with James Walker. Thank you again, James. I look to see you in person absolute sometime pleasure. and talk to you. All right, you okay, take care. Okay, absolute pleasure. Thank you. All right. And again, that was James Walker, James R. Walker, and it's Crack of the Bat, A History of Baseball on the radio. And we're going to now switch gears again, and we're going to do – for you folks out there, especially Henry Archuleta, you want to hear me do the love song. So for the next hour, we're going to do that. Then we're going to have another guest on here. And if you got a request, I may be able to fill it at 424-675-8315. But in the meantime, we're just going to start the music here, starting with my girl, Mesa. We're going to do Honey Bee. So let's hear that on the Root and Root Show as we devote the next hour to Slow Jam. Thank you. 
Love 
Yeah. 
Barry White along with Isaac Hayes, because, you know, people, when they first came out, people thought they were mixing them up. They said, well, you know, they sound the same. So they did a song together, and it's called Dark and Lovely. Hope you like that. Then we went back to 1970 with the Delphonics, Hey Love, and we started to set off with Mesa and Honey Bee. As we continue with more slow jams on the Root and Root Show, if you got a request here, you can call in at 424-675-8315. I'm going to have a guest on in the next half, after this next segment, in the next half hour, which will be 7.30 Eastern Standard Time, for those of you listening live. But we're going to get to more music here. I'm going to start off with Will Downing, I Go Crazy. So let's hear that on the Root and Root Show. You're driving me crazy. 
out of my mind, baby. I go.
All right. That was uh, Shantae Moore and Kenny Lattimore. At the time, they were married, and they did this album together, but that was, um, and they got divorced. I guess it was No Ordinary Love, but that was the Chardet uh, song, no, no Ordinary Love. It's easy for me to say. Before that, we did Brenda and the Tabulations, Right on the Tip of My Tongue. Then the stylistics, Payback is a Dog. Then Shantae Moore again in Bitter, or she was really bitter in that song. And before that, we did Barbara Mason in A Whole How It Hurts. Then we did Lou Rawls, Love is a Hurting Thing. And then we did Will Downing, I Go Crazy. And yeah, all that hurting to make you go crazy. So hope you enjoy that little segment of Slow Jams on the Root and Root Show. And I believe we already have our guest on. I have to say, this is one of the rare moments where I don't have the book in front of me because I just found out about this gentleman two days ago, and I was so happy to have him on. I wanted to get him on later on in the year, but I said, no. You know, I do so much Negro League stuff on here, and this guy's written a book about the Negro Leagues uh, called The Last Train to Cooperstown. And I hope this is my guest here. I'm talking about Kevin L. Mitchell. Are you there, Kevin? Yeah, Greg, I'm here. How are you doing? All right. Just ha- happy to have you on here. And listeners, you can call in here at 424-675-8315. And I'm at a disadvantage because I believe I know what the book is about. And I'm an expert also on the Negro Leagues. But tell us what made you decide to write the book Last Train to Cooperstown and your just your background. Okay. Well, um, as you and your, your last guest was were talking about, uh, listening to baseball on the radio. Uh, that's that's the way I grew up. I grew up, uh, I'm a baby boomer, so I grew up listening to baseball on the radio in the late 50s and um, in the 60s. Um, I'm from Kansas City, so I was I picked up the Kansas City A's broadcast, but I also was able to pick up St. Louis Cardinals broadcast out of the uh, radio station in St. Louis, Missouri, out of uh, St. Right. Joseph, Missouri, rather. Mm-hmm. And then on... On some nights, I could either pick up Ray Scott out of Minnesota for the Minnesota Twins and then sometimes the Chicago White Sox. So I am uh, a baby boomer baseball lover. And I I hear all the trends now about how uh, baseball has lost interest as a sport in the black community. And, right. And in thinking about that, uh, that was one of the reasons why I, I wrote this book, because I wanted to highlight to make sure that everybody knew and remembered that the um, that African Americans have deep, unshakable roots in baseball, and that's because of Negro League baseball, and that's basically the reason why I, I wrote the book, and I used the 2006 Hall of Fame inductees from Negro League baseball. Uh, those 12 players and those five executives, the book profiles them because in in their lives, in their careers, I think that gives you a, a large, a good, uh, paints a good picture of what Negro League Baseball was all about. Uh, they right. they yeah. were not, yeah, they, they were not the known uh, players like Josh Gibson or Satchel Paige uh, or the, the previous inductees into the Hall of Fame. Uh, these guys were sort of the the second tier, but they were still good ball players, and, and, and they still deserved recognition into the Hall of Fame. And, and I, so I used 
the profile of those players, those 12 players, and those five owners as a way to show Negro League Baseball and to just remind people that uh, African Americans have real deep roots in, in, in America's game. And it doesn't matter what the trends are right now. Uh, those roots are unshakable, and they'll always be there. They'll always be there. That's right. Listeners, you can join in at 424-675-8315. And that's been a model, basically, of this show since I've been on the Internet for six years, but also all the shows I've done on regular radio since 2001. Because I always talk about the Negro Leagues because the Negro League sums up basically to me, along with jazz and the blues, the history of this, and also the Civil War, the history of this country. Because it involves discrimination, racism, you know, and how we had to adapt. Right. And it shows that, you know, in every conversation basically I've had on this program, that we eventually will talk about the Negro Leagues and talk about what, how it affected this country, you know, how it is, and not only the country but the world, because it goes right, more right. than that, as you know. Right. Go ahead. Right. 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 Negro League baseball is a part of baseball history, but it, more than that, it's a part of African American history, and even more than that, like you say, it's embedded in in 20th century American history. Because that that's what it that's what it was all about. Despite it was it was formed out of segregation and racism, okay, it still was the vehicle that set up uh integration um into baseball. As a matter of fact, it set up integration into this country as a whole. So that that's what makes it so important. It makes it so much important. It's funny because when I first found out about you I only found out about your book uh Two days ago, I was yeah, actually okay, doing a search okay. online for something right. else, and I right. saw the book. I said, "Man, I got I got to get this guy and talk to him." But I had a conversation at the Black Memorabilia uh, Convention that was in Montgomery County, Maryland, two months ago, and mm-hmm. I talked to the guy who runs the Negro League Museum in Baltimore, Maryland, and okay. we got into a long discussion about the fact that. Um, we're hoping, but he believes, because he has more connections than I do as far as some of the ins and outs of the uh, Cooperstown Hall of Fame, that frankly that last group that you talk about in your book from 2006 may be the last group, period. Right, and there's, right, right, right. And that's, right, and that's right. very sad, actually. Right. That's very right. sad that's because the, there are so many players, as you know, and owners, right. participants, writers, who should be in the Hall of Fame. Who probably right, right. won't because, get in there. Go right. ahead. Because, as a matter of fact, the uh, the writer for the, the Baltimore African American, uh, he should be in there. Okay. He, oh, he, Sam Lacey. He, 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 right, Sam Lacey. Right. It's true. And I think and Sam is curve. in there, though. If I'm not oh, mistaken, he, he, he I think Sam. You think he? Okay. 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 Yeah, well, I'm, I'm doing it. I'm, I'm certain he he's in there. Okay. Well, well, well then um, Henry Kimbrough. Who was a member? Oh, he's not. Of the, right. He's not. Right. He, he he's not. He's he was with the the team in Baltimore, and the, and there are others. Um, you're right. Hopefully, hopefully, somewhere, uh, sometime in the future, there will be others that will be inducted. But as as I say in the book, it'll probably never be like that 2006 when 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 they had 15 uh, players 
and then the the, uh, the the five owners that were also inducted. So it, it never it will never be like it was in 2006. But hopefully there'll be others that will be inducted. And yes, I'm online, and uh, Sam Lacey was inducted into. I thought you know okay. I knew he was in okay. the Hall of Fame. Yeah, okay. He is in the okay. Hall of Fame. But the thing okay. is, you're right, and I'm glad you wrote the book. I'm looking forward to reading, getting it, and reading it from your publisher. Is that um, and I'm going back to the conversation I had with my friend and at the uh, Black Memorabilia Show, is that he says, based on his experience with the Hall of Fame, is that they did that in 2006 as a rush job and said, okay, this is what you're going to get. They said, be happy, we put these 12 in, and he more or less was told that. Okay, okay. And he's talked, and I hope that changes, but he's talked to folks like who were on the committee, like Monty Irvin at the time. Uh, okay, okay. You know, Joe Morgan, folks like that. And the thing that's going on here is that, frankly, there are a lot of folks who just don't remember the, you know, who aren't around anymore, players from, let's say, prior to the 30s. You know, some of the great players, right. of the, you know, the, right. the turn of the 20th right. century. Guy, we ha- I have a guy, a very good friend up in uh, Pennsylvania who is trying to get, uh, you probably know this name, uh, Rap uh, Dixon in the Hall of Fame. Dixon, Rap Dixon, right. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. He's been mm-hmm. fighting it for mm-hmm. years. and But he's out there, you know, there's only a few of us, like you know, him and me and some other folks who are trying to do this, but it's, there are folks who don't know who that is, a home run Johnson, guys like that, so many, you know, so many folks, umpires that should be in there. You know, own, you know, like we were saying, right. owners, and, and it's going to take a right. lot. And I think a book like yours can start that effort. You know, and it's funny that you know that your book, you know, that you have your book out now because there's an issue that's come up that you're aware of, uh, based in Spokane, Washington, right. about this woman who's who has been passing for African American, right. but the only woman in the Hall of Fame is someone. Who they still have a hard time figuring out. And I've had shows about Ethel uh, on, you know, in the past. But talk a little bit about right. her because she, they can't figure her out. So talk a little right. bit about her. Well, based on the research that that I found, okay, um, is she she was basically Anglo. She she was white, okay, but she was raised in a black environment. And 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 because of that, that's that's the environment that she uh, identified with, and that 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 she that she tried to live in. She was she was born in Philadelphia, and when she moved to New York, uh, she could pass for for white, but she lived in Harlem. Okay, so so that's that's where she lived because she identified with uh, with, with, with the black in, with the black environment. So. Uh, yes, yeah, she 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 definitely is an interesting uh, figure. And, and we're talking um, about Effa Manley. Yeah, Effa Manley. Know, some right. listeners she, don't know Effa Manley. Right, right, right. And she was basically she was the co-owner of the Newark Newark Eagles, but she ran the club. Her, her husband basically right. let her run run the club. She made the trades. She hired the managers. Um, it was also rumored she may have had uh, romances with some of the players. Okay. But uh, but she is the only woman uh, inductee into the Hall of Fame. You're right about that. Now, you know, in the last autobiography about her that came out, biography, not autobiography, biography that came right, out, I right. interviewed the author about seven years ago, 
And in the book, and I've read this other places, that folks like uh, Book O'Neill and some of the other players, Judy Johnson, they said, oh, yeah, we know she was black. She was, you know, we knew that. <laughs> but it's so, you know, you don't know. I mean, it's so, it, and she never said anything. No. You know, right, she never right can, she never actually said anything, but right, she never said right. she was white. She never said she was no. black, but she just identified right. as an African-American. And right. she calmly... Right. Every picture you see of her, she's in club, you know, black club. She's right. at the right. um, Negro League meeting, sitting there, you know, running right. the show. Right, right, right. She she worked in downtown New York at the department stores downtown, where they where they didn't allow uh, black people to work. But she was able to do that because she she passed. But she always went home to Harlem, where she lived. Yeah, where she identified with, with, with African Americans, so uh, uh, she was a very interesting person, very very interesting. Oh, she's something that um, a lot more people should know about her. The fact, you know, right. people, you know, the fact that she's the only woman first in the Hall of Fame is amazing. But her whole backstory, right. I'm surprised there have been no documentaries, no movies about her, anything. You know, she's in That's a correct. couple of like Negro League documentaries making comments. As right. an older but woman, but, not, but nothing, right? But nothing specifically about her. You're right. You're right. 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 And you know, she she did, she she uh, she had anti-lynching days. You know, where she she was very oh, yeah. active with NAACP. You know, in, in New York. So she was. Yes, yeah, she 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 stood up for uh, for black people. She she definitely did. She definitely did. Definitely did. An amazing person. Anna, let's pick out another person in the book that people may not know about. Well, you, well, you well know. Two, of, two, two of the people that, that, that stuck out with me, one was George Mule Suttles, okay? Oh, man, and yeah. Everybody knows about Josh Gibson and, and the stories about the mammoth home runs uh, he hit. But, um, you know, Josh may have hit more. But they didn't go as far as as Mule Suttles as some of the, some of the ones he, he hits. He was a uh, there are a lot of stories in Negro League lore about some of the mammoth home runs that that he hit. And so uh, and and like I was saying before, he's not one that you you didn't hear a lot. You heard you heard a lot about initially, like with Gibson and Satchel Page. But but Suttles he he was a, he was a tremendous hitter. And then the other the other one that I thought was was interesting was uh, with the Homestead Grays, and that was Judd Wilson. Oh yeah, they, they, they called they called him Boo Jam, Boo Jam, because that was the oh, that yeah. was the sound of the of, of the ball that he hit that hit the wall, and and uh, Satchel Paige said he was one of the toughest hitters that he ever faced, and he had a legendary temper. They said he off the field. He was he was very you know, quiet, very uh, nice guy to get along with. But when he was on the field in the heat of the game, he had a terrible temper. And he was one of the you know Negro League baseball. One of the the, the things that uh, was a knock against them was that some of the players did not respect the umpires. Okay, and and Judd Wilson was an umpire's nightmare. There, there were stories about how he chased umpires after the game, how he swung bats at them. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, a, a lot of people say, well, he was an example of how 
uh, African-American players were not ready for the major leagues. But my thing was this. Uh, major League Baseball players back then were not choir boys. They're, they're oh, no, of, I mean, there were some you know, brutal right. fights. Right, brutal right, fights. Right. A lot of things. And that was just with players. Right, managers right, versus right. players, managers right, versus right, umpires. Right, 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 right. And, but, but, but it was back then, you know how the media was. There was no media coverage. A lot of the, the writers um, traveled with the players and didn't write about what they saw. Okay. Right. So, oh, yeah. Right. So my feeling is, you know, guys like Judd Wilson, you know, at least they should have gotten a chance. Okay. At least they should have gotten a chance if if, if they gotten up there and, and, and acted unruly or whatever. Okay. But he didn't even get a chance. You you, you understand what I'm saying? And, and, and oh, yeah. Cause, uh, and, and I, I, yeah, and I want to tell you this, uh, Kevin. You probably didn't hear the show last night, but I had – a guy on here, you might know David uh, Hubbler, but he wrote a book called The Nats and the Grays. It's about the Washington Nationals and the Homestead Grays in D.C. Okay. during World okay. War II. It's a fascinating okay. book. But he okay. gets into okay. all of that, what you're talking about. And the thing is that guys, you know, the guys you're mentioning that should have had a chance just didn't get that chance. And Clark Griffin had a golden opportunity, the owner of the Washington Nationals. Right, because he had them. You know, they, he was watching all these guys in his ballpark and charging them money to pay, play in his ballpark. The fact of the matter is, he had the opportunity to become Branch Rickey in a sense, and to integrate in a major right. city as DC that had a predominantly black population. But he didn't do it. He didn't do it, and we were debating last night, and I. Continue to debate it. Was he a racist? Or was he, you know? And I hate the term. Well, he was a product of his times because I don't like that term. Right. Either right, you know, right, either you're right. for integration or against it. You know, there's no middle right. ground. You right, know, and I right, my right. thing is that I'm still, you know, I've been researching him for years, and I think, you know, I think his thing is like his bottom line that he wanted money, but he didn't have the, you know, frankly, the balls to make, you know, to break the, you know, to break the rules of the era and just integrate the team and it would have been to right. his benefit and that's where right. the racism yeah. comes in right go ahead and a lot of, a lot of people don't realize that the, the white owners they made money off of negro league baseball by oh, by God, the rent yeah. that they, that they charge for the stadium okay so and, and so that was that was another aspect that was the racist aspect of it okay but then there was also the the economic aspect of it and they just and and i I think the thing that made them realize made them change was that they they saw the reaction to jackie robinson you know once once branch ricky uh let jackie robinson play and 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 the owners saw the crowds that 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 were following jackie robinson that that sort of made it made them change their thinking so it, 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 racism was involved, but also there was economics, definitely so. Oh, definitely. definitely. It always comes down to economics. And, and as right. you were talking about right. earlier, but, you know, we were mentioning Effa Manley. She was farsighted enough to see what was going to happen. She was talking right. in the late 30s about if they do integrate the major leagues, there's going to have to be some sort of minor league system or something with the Negro leagues, because if you don't have that, we're going to be dead. Right, and she was right. Right, and, right, right. They they didn't they didn't follow up on what she was saying, but she was exactly right. She was exactly right. 
she knew exactly what she was doing. But you know, right. I, you know, it, it makes me so happy when I hear about you know folks like you and David yesterday and other folks I've had on this show writing about the Negro leagues because I want to tell you, and you probably have had this experience talking to some Negro League players, is that during the same uh, Black Memorabilia show I went to in April. I had opportunity to meet a couple of the guys that, you know, used to play around here, play for the Indianapolis Clowns and other teams. And these weren't, like, well-known guys, but they were Negro League players in the 40s and 50s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they kept telling you know, and they kept saying, you know, there's not too many of us around. You know, somebody's got to tell our stories. Mm-hmm. Somebody's got to say mm-hmm. our stuff because, you know, there's, I think, less than 160 of them left. Right, right, and 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 each year it decreases more. They, they are, they're right. They're decreasing. You're right. You're right. They're decreasing. And it's so funny because so, last year, at last year's convention, there may have been eleven or so players there. This year, it may, I think there were what five. Mm-hmm. And one of the guys mm-hmm. said, "Look, look around. We're not here. We're mm-hmm. not around here." Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it's important. So that's why I'm glad that you have written this book and that you're out there pushing it. And, you know, just making sure that that legacy of the Negro Leagues is still embedded, and really right. embedded right. in minds. Right. Now, what, what right. Else, Now you're on a tour right now? No. Is that no, what they were no, telling you? No. Well, the, the, the tour that they were talking about is uh, Phil Dixon. I'm, I'm sure you are aware of him. Oh, Phil's supposed what, to be on here, Vince. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he is on his... Um, his um, Monarchs played in your hometown right. tour, and so he's right. going to to these these towns in uh, in the Midwest where the Monarchs played when they were when they were barnstorming. Okay, and I think, uh, matter of fact, on Facebook, I think he's going to be in either South Dakota or North Dakota uh, this right. weekend. So 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 that that's the tour that he's on. And, and, and okay. that's, that's a tremendous that's a tremendous thing because uh, the monarchs did uh, travel uh, basically from the Canadian border down to the uh, Mexican border in in, in terms of barnstorming. Um, and then there were a lot of barnstorming tours through on California, okay. And then uh, you know there are the the tournaments like in Wichita and Denver. Oh yeah, that, that, that's a great that, book that, on those, that, those tournaments. Right, yeah. right, 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 right. So, 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 uh, African Americans played played baseball. There was a lot of baseball that African Americans played before uh, Jackie Robinson, and, and, and I think people just have to understand that and, and realize that. And, and and it's a testament also to to all those guys that kept uh, Negro League baseball going because. Because of the racism and 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 the dec- and, and the segregation, they could have they could have given up, but they they, oh, yeah. they I mean, it wasn't great money, was the, but yeah, right, 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 right. But they approached it as professionals. They approached it as professionals, and they kept it alive and they kept it going. And and that basically, even though they may not have uh, gotten the results from it, but the Jackie Robinsons and the Roy Campanellas and Ernie Banks and Willie Mays and, and Monty Irvins, they were all uh, a result. Hank Aaron, of course, they are all a result. Every, of, you know, you can go on down the line to who's in the league right, now. Right, you can right, talk with right, right, Corey Hunter, right. anyone, all these folks. Right. When I've interviewed right. the current players, I mean, they're, they're, right. they are so indebted to the 
Negro League players, you wouldn't right. believe it. It's right. just amazing. Right. right. Now, we're getting ready to conclude this uh, segment here, uh, Kevin. So, so how would people, if they want to get a hold of the book or get a hold of you, where should they go and what should they do? Okay. Okay. There, the, the book is available at local uh, bookstores and also through um, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and BooksAmillion.com. And I have a a web page where they can uh, fi- uh, find information about it, and that's www.klmitchell.com. And I also have a blog where I write about uh, not only Negro League baseball, but um, like in the 50s, uh, right, right during the initial phases of integration, I write about I write about that, and that's at www.thebaseballscroll.blogspot.com. I'm going to check that out, and I hope the listeners will check that out, too. Because that, and we've yeah. had shows on here, too, about that period, the guys after Jackie Robinson, and yeah, that whole right. mid-'50s period right. is a fascinating right. subject. It's, it's, it's very fascinating because, you know, they had the quota systems, okay, and, oh yeah, and, and if you basically, Which yeah, if some you basically, people would say it's still going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you basically weren't a frontline player, you basically they kept you down in the minor leagues. You know where they they. So uh, yeah, the, even though the the uh, the color line was broken, they they still had to face a lot of discrimination and racism. You know. So oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's a very fascinating period. A very fascinating period. It is, and I just want to thank you for writing this book and just the work that you're doing. It's great and it makes me feel good to hear that, you know, folks out there doing that, you know, and just keep up in anything I can do. i got to get you back on here sometime okay. and just well, talk to you some more about it. Oh, no, thank, thank you, you so much for, you know, doing your work. You just take care, and I'll okay. be talking to you later. Take care. Okay. Goodbye. And again, that was Kevin L. Mitchell. He wrote the book, Last Train to Cooperstown. I hope you enjoyed that discussion. And, you know, and that's the reason why, I, you know, a lot of you out there are probably thinking, well, you know, always at some point Greg brings up the Negro Leagues, but it's very important. I mean, it's a legacy. And it's not so much my love of baseball, but the love of history and the love of what that represents in history. As Martin Luther King said, you know, when he went up to – Don Newcomb, he said, you know, without you guys and Jackie and all y'all, my work would have been much harder. And that's and that's it. And the work, you know, still so much that has to go on, obviously. You know, but it's still, that is the legacy there. And I just keep that anytime I find there's a book or anyone that's doing anything about the Negro Leagues, I put them on the show here because it's very important to keep that legacy going. And to keep the issue of what's going on as far as with race in this country, because people want to keep hiding from it. You know, the latest thing is about that woman and uh, with the uh, Spokane NAACP, Spokane Washington NAACP. Is she black? Is she white? Is she, is she this? And you see where, you know, it's all about race again. But in the meantime, as I said yesterday, I still say that. That is a non-story, what she's going through. That's between her and her family. If she wants to, you know, if she wants to pass with black, you know, go ahead. But what about issues like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP, that on the same day, on the same day, this was in the news about this woman up there in Spokane, you got the vote going on, which was voted down, thank goodness, but you had 
your president, you know, your African-American president, supporting TPP. And if you know anything about if you don't know anything about Thaladin, I'm going to get into it now because I have less than five minutes now, but Google it, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP. Look under that. Look at that. And you tell me what's more important, that or someone, the issue of someone's race in Spokane, Washington. You tell me what's more important. But anyway, I'm going to get ready to get out of here because next week, in fact, I'm going to be talking more about TPP next week because we're going to have a, Paul Marco back on again from the world beyond belief. He's going to be on here for two hours next week, and we're just going to get into a lot of the issues that you don't see in the papers. You have to really look. You know, you're not going to see some of the primary news sources, be it MSNBC, CNN, Fox, talking about some of these issues, but we'll be talking about them again next week, as, as it is with the Negro Leagues. You don't hear a lot of folks talking about it, it's rare, but we keep that energy going out there. So this is Greg Rashid with the Root and Root Show. And before I go, I want to say if you want to support the show as far as being a sponsor, if you want to just, you know, follow, you can go to my Facebook site, Greg, last name Rashid, R-A-S-H-E-E-D. You can go to Twitter, hashtag Unifix, U-N-I, F as in Frank, I-C-S, Unifix. You can go on the blogtalkradio.com site, look for Root and Root Show, and leave your comments or interest on there. And just, you know, because I want to hear from you. I'm getting a lot of followers and a lot of folks interested. And a lot of topics on this program have been based on listener like you, like yourself who asked me, well, can you talk about this? Can you find this author? Can you find this newsmaker? Can you find this song? And so that's what I try to do. But this is Greg Rasheed. I want to say go in love and go in peace. I'm going to leave you with, um, I think we'll leave you with Billy Stewart, DC's own Billy Stewart. And we're going to do, I think we will do How Nice It Is. So go in love and go in peace. See you next week on the Root and Root Show.
So oh. 